Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Let's take a moment and ask the Lord to cause His Word to burn in our hearts. Let's pray together. Our holy and righteous God, we lift up our hearts into your presence through the work of Christ and the mediation of the Spirit. We pray that as your word is read and hopefully declared with some power and accuracy that you will prepare our ears and our hearts to receive, embrace, believe, and act upon your word that Christ may be glorified, that the work of the gospel may be reaffirmed and the work of your kingdom go forward hear us as we pray we come before you now in jesus name amen all right this is god's word from first peter chapter number one beginning at verse number 10 of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels desire to look. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to your former lust, as in your ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call upon the Father, who, without partiality, judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself through the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. For you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And thus ends the reading of this part of God's Word. And as this chapter actually concludes, you've heard this before, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord will stand forever. Amen. Well, I want to um, try to do several things in the message tonight, and I need to go back and do three things in preparation. If you will look back over to verse 1. We are in the first century, probably A.D. 60 to 68. 
and there is a rising degree of antagonism and persecution that all Christians are suffering across the Roman Empire. The pilgrims of the dispersion, verse 1, in these provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, are all independent um, provinces um, with their own municipalities and their own culture and all of this, all of them Gentile, um, and they are scattered throughout Asia, which or Asia Minor, which we know today as the country or nation of Turkey. Nation of Turkey um, in our own day has been uh, increasingly antagonistic to Christians. And when I was still here, we used to pray every Sunday for a man named Andrew Brunson, who is uh, a pastor who they kept in prison for three or four years, uh, charging him with spying and all kinds of things that uh, were not true. Um, he and his wife had pastored a church there for like 25 years. They had been good citizens. They had seen gospel uh, progress. And so this is where the prophecy uh, or the letter is sent to in A.D. 60 to 68. The next thing I want to point out just very quickly is something of the value of the gospel that is mentioned in verses three through five. I remember years ago, I actually did a series on First and Second Peter. And uh, one of the things that struck me at that time, and it struck me again this week in um, preparation for tonight, is the value, the value of what the gospel is all about. Um, a couple of things that we can say about it. First of all, they are possessors. They possess an inheritance. The word that is used in the New Testament can describe something that is already received as well as something that is expected in the future. We have legal descriptions of those things in our own culture. The second thing is that they are kept or guarded by the power of God through faith. That is noted for you in verse 5. But I want to speak just very quickly about the value of their salvation, the value of, of being in covenant with God and of uh, living by faith under His Lordship. Look, if you will, uh, with me at verses um, 3 and 4. I love verse 3 because it says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We do not have a dead faith. We do not serve a, a martyr who lived and died, and that's the end of the story. We serve a risen Christ who has conquered sin and death for his people. And he bids all who will to heed this good news and to come to him without delay. All right, notice what it says. The living hope is described um, in the end of verse 3 and then part of, well, all of verse 4. An inheritance that is incorruptible. The Greek word means that it is imperishable. Um, it is incapable of decay. It would be like having wood that would not rot or metal that would not rust and, and just being in awe of that very fact. 
Your, your inheritance and glory, says Peter, is incapable of decay. It only gets better as you live for God's glory. The next thing that is, is said in verse 4 is that it is undefiled. <clears throat> it is unstained. That word would describe, for those of you who have maybe a, a deck or something at your house, you'd never have to restain it. Uh, that would be nice. Uh, you'd never have to do that because it is undefiled. There's nothing wrong, nothing deficient, nothing defective in the inheritance. Pure and unimpaired. Nothing can stain or defile the excellent nature of it. And the last thing is it described there is unfading in verse 4 does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That word describes, was used in the first century at least, of flowers, and it suggests a supernatural beauty which does not diminish over time. Now I know we have all kinds, we have them in here, we have fake flowers, but these are real flowers that never, never turn brown and have to be thrown out. Now this anticipates the what, what we get in the last couple of chapters <clears throat> excuse me, of the book of Revelation about the um, blessings of the new heaven and the new earth. Something to anticipate <clears throat> excuse me, and to look forward to. Okay, so the value of, of the gospel. Um, I know that some people say, well, this is something that preachers are going to say, but this is the most valuable thing you have. It's more valuable than your property, your hobbies, your family, it's, it's the most valuable thing you possess. And he wants these hearers to remember this as persecution sets in, intensifies, and arises, which it was doing at that time. Um, during 60 to 68, um, the, some had described him as a mental case. Um, Emperor Nero... Um, took over as the emperor and um, he was like a lot of politicians he was in over his head from the get go and he did not rule well and to make up for his deficiencies he blamed the Christians for it if we didn't have these Christians we'd be doing all right. so persecution was increasing you can go back and read about this as it as it was reflected I'm sorry <clears throat> upon Jewish converts, read the book of Hebrews, and you will find that same emphasis there. So, um, he notes in verses 6 through 9, and we finally get up to where we're starting for, for today, that they have been set, beset by various trials. <clears throat> And the reason for that, according to verse 7, is that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, even gold with the prices that it is today in, in inflation, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he telling them? I remember going through this part of this some years ago. Um, the image that is being used here to powerfully convey what the Lord is doing in the midst of 
of the persecution and the circumstances in which they're trying to live by faith is, is expressed by a term that was also used to describe the process of converting ore to a finished product. Now we are familiar here in our part of the world with, um, although we don't hear much about it anymore, the, uh, the, the coal mining industry. Uh, coal mining goes into the ground, gets the ore, the dirt, the rocks out with it. It is separated, it is cleaned, it is washed, um, it is heated, and, and at the end you have a product that you can that you could use for various purposes, whether you're heating your house or if you turn it to coke to um, create uh, steel and other metals. But that's not what this is talking about here, but it uses that image because what it uses, the, the, the image here is that of, as you can read it, it's gold, gold and silver. And it says that our faith is more valuable than these things. The book of Proverbs says this, that there are things more valuable to us than gold and silver. And we nod our heads to that, but some, some of us deep inside, we really don't believe that. We want that. We want those material possessions. And our confidence too often is found in those things. But I want you to notice, and I used to do this, I think I did this, when I did this years ago, um, had a little rock that I got um, going to one of the, our assemblies. Uh, there were some of us before the committee meeting started that went out to a place that did actual gold mining. And they had a little rock. They gave us all a, it was, it was a thing for tourists, like I was that afternoon. And they would tell you that inside that little rock, there's actually gold ore. But the cost effectiveness of getting it out would make it um, not profitable for the mining company. So they give these out as things for tourists. But on, one thing you could get when you went back through the tourist shop was a little vial, little glass thing of 24 karat gold. And it's gold and sparkly, and you can turn the thing up and down. And what? Peter is saying is that we are somewhere between that rock and the finished product of the 24 karat gold. It uses that kind of imagery. We are being refined. Sometimes persecution does that job or does at least part of that. I want you, if you don't want to follow the, my text here, um, I want to just mention several biblical texts, uh, all of these from the Old Testament. Um, where the Lord speaks through his prophets <clears throat> using this very image when he speaks of the intense dealings he proposes for his erring people. And I should have noted before I start this, <clears throat> mining, <clears throat> mining, whether it is coal mining or gold mining, is a very intensive process. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of heat, and yet you go from like the rock to this finished product a, a beautiful trophy, if you will, valuable, polished, and a finished product. So several times the Lord speaks to his prophets using this very image when he speaks of the intense dealings he is proposing for his erring people. First of all, in Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 7, the prophet writes, Behold, I will refine them 
and try them. And in verse 11, in ver- chapter 11 and verse 4, he says, I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. That speaks of the um, re- redemption, refining them, trying them by fire. In Psalm 66 and verse 10, the author writes, For you, O Lord, have tested us. This is the word it means to refine. You have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. That speaks in that particular context of the fact that God's word and the power of the gospel in our sanctification, it purifies us. It cleanses us. Prophet Zechariah, chapter 13 and verse 9, the prophet says, I will bring them through the fire, will refine them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. Here's a reference to restoration. We're redeemed, we're purified, we're restored. And the last, and there are probably other other references I could bring into this is found in the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 3, where it says, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver that they may offer to me, to the Lord rather, an offering in righteousness. This speaks of worship. So we go from being unsaved to being redeemed, purified, restored, and we are gathered around the throne of God in worship. Malachi describes God himself seated in authority as the refiner of his people. And why is this? So that their worship may be made pure and acceptable in his sight. The Lord then further through the prophet Isaiah extends this image by declaring this. This is found in Isaiah 48, 10 and 11. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. How should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. This takes the image to another place, another level. Because now the Lord is not talking about dealing with raw metal. You notice that when I read that verse, I am refined you, but not as silver. He's not talking about metal. He's talking about real people, image bearers of the Most High God, the redeemed people, image bearers of His likeness with hearts of stone that have been changed by the power of the gospel into living hearts, hearts of flesh, as noted for us in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26. The sanctification of His people... And God's honor is at stake in the midst of their intense trial. So we can either throw a pity party and feel real sorry for ourselves or hunker down and try to get out of sight or we can live for His glory in such circumstances. And these, these verses ask us, set before us, you know, what, what our calling is to do and to be. Now, I want to finally get to the thing about pursuing the promise. Um, the, um, 
the blessings of this text for tonight. Peter records that there is a most glorious aspect to the end of your faith. That's the last phrase in verse 9. What does it say? Receiving in the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's the culmination of everything from redemption to sanctification to restoration to worship around the throne as described in the book of Revelation. What Peter is talking about is not merely the reality of a new legal standing before the throne of the triune God. It's not just going down an aisle, signing a card, or raising your hand. There's so much more that he has in view. As noted, Peter has said that the faith of these saints is like a result of intense process of gospel sanctification, which he compares to the refining of metal. This revolves around or involves a comprehensive change where his people, image bearers of his likeness, have had their stony hearts changed and renewed and replaced with hearts of flesh. This also describes the end result of the Christian race, I'm thinking now of verse 9, as recorded by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 and 7 and 8. You're familiar with these verses. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, <clears throat> will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So, motivated by love, these saints that are being addressed in First Peter, um, they have persevered unto holiness. They're captivated by the utter majesty of Christ, even in the midst of these trials. And there is a fragrance of King Jesus that marks their lives with a quality of grace that is described by the phrase back in verse 8, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Even in the midst of everything being lost, there is a fragrance of Christ about these folks. Why is that? Because their lives are different. Because they are looking to Him who is um, the author and finisher or perfecter of their faith. I want you to follow along with me now. Um, because of the title of the message, if you will, turn back over to the book of Hebrews chapter 11, just for a second. You know, Hebrews 11 is the account of the Old Testament saints. There are a couple things about this that I think are quite important. Um, I've heard it taught in Sunday school in this very room about Abraham. Abraham was given tremendous promises, and yet Abraham never owned one square foot not one, of the promised land. And this is kind of the temper or the theme of Hebrews 11. Verse 13 reads this way, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, 
but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them, described in another place as a city made without hands. Basically, this says, Abraham could have turned around and gone home. But he had a vision of what God had promised. And he persevered and went out not even knowing where he was going to go. He was just listening to the, to the voice of Yahweh. Look at the end of chapter 11. And this summarizes all of these Old Testament saints that are touched upon in chapter 11. All of these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect or complete apart from us. In other words, something was in preparing mode with eternity in view. Now, I want to make five statements about these verses 10 through 12 that I think are significant and important as we live in such a time that finds us here in 2022. First of all, Peter writes that the prophets sought out and searched out the meaning of salvation that they proclaimed. <clears throat> they were intrigued by the biblical hope as promised. It moved them to a deep investigation of these promises, although they only had bits and pieces of them. The text does not tell us how this was approached. Perhaps, this is pure speculation, perhaps they sought to bring together and compile, like a biblical book of sorts, um, all of the prophetic references that they had, which at the time were all Old Testament, and get the bigger picture of what they sensed that God was revealing to and through them in his sacred transactions with them. If you've ever seen a, um, an art form called mosaic where you have maybe a glass window that is characterized by all kinds of different colors, and all of those little places or all those little uh, sections of glass or whatever they are, they, are, they form part of a much bigger picture. And in the case of our salvation, it's a picture of intrinsic beauty and glory. So there was something significant about what was going on in the lives of these prophets. Even though, as you know, many of them were mistreated, they were stoned, they were killed, they were ignored, as God's Word is largely today. <clears throat> But the prophets knew that this was not simply about their one moment when they lived. 
They realized that this was something that went beyond warnings about immorality, injustice, idolatry, and even the threat of divine judgment. It moved the prophets to go the second mile, according to verse 10, to research, to interpret, and communicate hope for godly change to a straying culture. That's what you and I are called to do, to live prophetically in light of the Word so that the savor of Christ surrounds us and bids others to come to Him, not because of us, but for what He is doing, hopefully through us. So the prophets sought out and searched out the meaning of the salvation they were proclaiming. Second thing is this, and this is also found in verse 10. The literal term, the prophets prophesied or spoke forth with God's authority about the certainty of the divine grace that would come to you. This was not speculation. This was divine certainty. What had been decreed in the councils of eternity before there ever was a world was being slowly worked out over the course of human history. In the midst of all the chaotic decline of culture and the resulting spiritual darkness, they spoke of a real hope, like I mentioned there from verse 3, a living hope, not based upon an, a, an earthly, a new earthly political order, a bigger army, or a new god to pursue. Rome, the Roman Empire was full of all of these things. But the hope was grounded in God's divine grace and His unmerited favor to needy souls fixed in the certainty of the eternity and His promise, the person and work of the coming Messiah. This is significant because it reinforces the fact that the prophets realized they were part of something bigger than themselves and their own immediate and local concerns. In fact, this was bigger than Israel or Judah. It, affect, it infected, affected the whole of the created order and all of time leading into eternity. They realized it was something bigger than the rise and fall of earthly kings and kingdoms. I think we need to be reminded of that in our own day. They prophesied of an eternal kingdom of regenerated sons and daughters, changed forever by the righteousness of the coming Messiah, and the atoning blood of the cross. You say, well, where do you get that? Look, go back and reread Isaiah 53. And there are other places as well that speak of who Messiah is, man of sorrows, and what he would accomplish in the world for his own. Third thing I want to mention is this, from this, these promises. And I think we understand this, or we can understand this, even though the knowledge that they had was incomplete at best, it says they were searching. The English Standard Version renders it this way, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Verse 11. That's astonishing. The Spirit of Christ was in these men generations, centuries before He ever was incarnated and came to earth through the 
Virgin Mary. The Spirit of Christ was within them. They were, in their own day, preaching the Gospel with the level of knowledge and the presence of God's Spirit in their ministries. One of the reasons they affected such opposition, especially the minor prophets. Salvation and the glory of God's people vitally connected to the revelation and the proclamation of God's Word through the ages. New Testament affirms that it is through the foolishness of the message preached. 1 Corinthians 1.21 We've read this before. Studied it before. Preached through it before. That the people of God are kept, claimed and kept by its power. Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Okay, we go back to the message. We go back to the Word of Christ. Where do we find this? We find it in the book. We find it in the revealed truths of God as recorded by these prophets and others who wrote Scripture. They were not editing. They were not putting their, their own tweaking of it. They were not spinning it for their own purposes. They were actually... Fourth thing I'll mention here, they were actually serving future generations who would receive the good news with joy. Look at verse 12. Get back over there real quickly. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us. Christians of the first century and you and me who hear this word tonight, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who preach the Gospel. Suffering saints addressed by Peter were to remember this provision was actually made for them. They were living in a on a marvelous moment when much of this revelation was come together, they had a, they had a, a Bible of sorts. It was mostly the Old Testament. But they had something that had not been available in the days of Abraham. Even in the days of Moses until the end of his earthly ministry. They were part of something bigger than their present circumstances. And the appeal to these men and women who are undergoing persecution is this if they remember their true identity, who they really are in Christ, if they cling to the promises He's made to His own, it is to be hoped that they can trust Him and they can persevere in these present difficulties. And the last thing is this, and this is sort of focuses on verse 12. The same Holy Spirit that moved these prophets also directed those who proclaimed the gospel of saving grace to those Peter had addressed in the letter. They have disclosed heavenly things that pertain to the redemption of God's people. And now Peter makes an astonishing statement. He says that the things, these are things into which angels long to look. 
even though these heavenly beings are ever before the face of God in their service to Him, they are in some sense, I'm talking about the angels now, consumed with those things that set forth the perfection and the majesty of the divine purpose to save. Now most of us in this room sat through in the 80s and 90s some um, programs, weekly programs about angels that were Maybe they were entertaining to some of you, but the theology was horrible. Um, that's not a biblical picture of what an angel is. The word angel, angelos, means simply a messenger. An angel is a messenger of God's purposes and His Word. They're not independent agents. They're not contractors. They are His servants. They minister continually in the light of the glorious God in His covenant of redemption. They know and they bow before the staggering trinity of divine persons in the Godhead. They communicate God's Word and they act in His behalf in their appointed responsibilities. But there's something different about angels. Angels shall never know the meaning of being redeemed from their sins. They'll never know that. They'll never know the consolation of being given a new heart. They can observe it in those who are saved, but they'll never know the reality of that themselves. They do not know the blessings of sanctification in the same sense that the redeemed can know and appreciate them. The promise that is made to the church in Philippians 1.6 that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ They applaud this. They glory in it. But they cannot receive that in the same sense that you and I can. And that those suffering believers in the first century were. The beauty and perfection of the purpose to save needy souls is not found in angels. It is found in God alone. And it's communicated through the church's ministry of proclamation. In an amazing reference to this, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a reference to angelic beings. The redemptive purposes are of great interest to them, great concern, and to the whole host of heaven who are better able to glorify God. Angels do as they behold in utter amazement what God has done and is doing in creating His church, His holy bride, through the power of the gospel. Jesus himself said, John 16 and 33, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And if we remember these staggering truths and blessings, they can be a powerful motivation for you and me to keep the eyes of our hearts fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, but he has conquered this and now has 
ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father and the majesty on high. If this is all of this is true of angels, think of what it means to you and me as we apply these things to our own hearts. As our minds are transformed, as our bodies and souls are conformed to the image of Christ, we live in the moment, this moment, by faith, with the eyes of our hearts fixed upon the glory yet to come, the new heaven and the new earth. It is a glorious future. We're not living in denial. We're living in utter biblical reality. Cling to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do bless your great name. We are interested, we are amazed, we are instructed by these verses that eons ago, your servants, the prophets, who were indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, they were recording your truth, sometimes in very small bits and pieces. And over the course of time, those truths have pointed us with utter certainty to a Messiah that we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. Prophets urged us to repent and to believe and to trust and to look forward to the fulfillment of the promise. Remind us every day that although we have not obtained the promises either as yet, we have a foretaste of them. And the promises will be realized in the consummation of redemption in the new heaven and the new earth. Remind us that this is not simply pie in the sky by and by, but it is a steadfast promise that will sustain us in the darkest moments of opposition and persecution. We do pray, O oh Lord, that you will seal these things to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.